In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is a podcast about psychology. My name's Hunter Mulcair and I'm a psychologist. At the moment, we are doing a series of interviews with clinicians working in the field, and this is part of Psychology Week 2018. So on this show today, we are going to be talking about how to get better sleep. So today with me, I've got Dr. Lyndall Shand. Welcome to to the show. And uh, she's a health psychologist and and she works in community-based rehab. And we were working recently on a case uh, together and we got to talking about how improving sleep is often a focus of her work. And so, and I thought it was really, really interesting discussion. So I thought I'd get you on to come and talk to us all about it. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. So uh, before we kind of get into that, um, I just wanted to remind people to, if they like the show, to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to the show. You can check out our website, twoshrinkspod.com, and that has a list of podcast episodes and episodes by title. So if you're looking for a particular topic, you can go back through and you can also follow us on Twitter. That's about all the housekeeping I want to do. So let's get into it. So there's a thing called sleep hygiene. That's pretty commonly known so that's that kind of thing of like when you you know the advice psychologists or on the internet would you know you use your bed for sleep or sex only you know you have a dark room no caffeine before in a couple of hours before bed no phones or blue light in the hour before try not to nap during the day limit alcohol cool temperature regular time to go to bed that mm-hmm. kind of stuff yeah so that i mean that's kind of pretty standard sleep hygiene stuff and what I guess I wanted to do today was to kind of talk a little bit more about some of the complexities of Mm. sleep and how it affects us and what affects sleep and kind of run through some kind of scenarios and about how like a psychologist might work with that. So, I mean, maybe let's just keep it general to start with. Linda, why would a psychologist be interested in sleep? To me, sleep is like the key to well-being. So it's, it's really a link between emotional and physical health in my view and, and each influence sleep. So your physical health and what's going on for you, you know, whether it's medications or a particular health issue or pain or, you know, potentially urinary issues overnight that are interrupting sleep, you know, those physical things impact on our sleep and that usually when we're sleep deprived, we're not our most um, happiest, we're not our best selves, but also psychological issues impact on sleep. Mm. Um, So things like depression, anxiety, stress, all the worries that kind of wake you up and keep you up at three o'clock in the morning. Um, spinning around in your mind, all of those things um, impact on sleep. And, you know, then you're not physically the best either the next day. So to me, it's really the key. Yeah, yeah. And I often think like when I'm working with someone that, uh, who particularly who might not be that convinced that they've got a problem, like in terms of their mood or their anxiety or something, that one of the key markers you can go is like, so how's your sleep going at the moment? Absolutely. And they go, oh, blah, 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 you know, this, my sleep's been troubled for a while. Or sometimes you can pick up like kind of like, oh, so when do these problems start? Oh, I don't really know. Tell me about your sleep. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of go, when did your sleep start to get difficult? Oh, it was two weeks ago when this big thing happened at work. And, yeah. you know, it can be a, it's a, we can be not that aware of our mood, but I think our sleep, we can be 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a bit of a canary in the coal mine sometimes. It's, yeah. it's a really good indicator of, like, I know personally when I'm not having great sleep, I'm like, okay, well, what am I stressed about? And, and then I need to kind of dig deeper about what's going on yeah. because that's what's impacting on my sleep. Yeah, I, like, I, it depends. Like, so, like, for me, I'm, like, a good sleeper. Like, basically, like, as soon as I go to bed, I can just, like, I usually am exhausted and just fall asleep. So, mm-hmm. if I don't sleep, it's, like, a really big deal. Big deal, like, yeah. in terms of, like oh, something must really be bothering me about mm-hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. And that's when it can be become extremely frustrating. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the other thing to sleep as well. When we don't sleep, that frustration, that agitation, that kind of catastrophizing that we, we have when we know, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be great tomorrow. I'm going to be grumpy. I'm only going to have two hours sleep. Or, yeah. um, you know, that actually perpetuates poor sleep because you're then worrying about um, not sleeping and you're not, calm and relaxed and able to fall asleep yeah yeah and i think i think where a lot of people young adults kind of the first real experience of like real problem sleeping is when they become parents if they become parents and that you get like a real crash course in the effects of sleep deprivation (laughs) yes (laughs) so i mean one of the things i guess what i wanted to ask you was about how does disrupted sleep impact things like cognition or digestion or mood or memories or muscles so like because i often notice that like sometimes if i don't sleep that well my legs are sore and then other times like uh, i find if i don't get good sleep that i'm foggy but it doesn't Mm -hmm. always seem to be consistent Mm -hmm. like what's that about i think it's really important to understand that you know, people know about our body clock. Most people have a pretty good concept of what your body clock is. So your circadian rhythm yeah. and it's the processes that govern things like sleep and appetite and alertness throughout the day, as well as like a whole other range of bodily processes. And when that gets disrupted, that can really impact on the rest of you physically, like your digestion and your memory and thinking. But also when we sleep, it's it's not this passive process. So, you know, we're not just unconscious. We actually, we, we our body's very active. Our mind is very active. Mm. Our brain is busy repairing and restoring both cognition and, you know, restoring our muscles and physical function. Yeah, right. So I guess it depends on if you understand the sleep cycles, then you kind of, and where your sleep might be disrupted, you might have a bit of a better clue about why maybe you're, particularly mentally foggy one day versus physically feeling really heavy and sore and tired. Mm, mm. So tell us a bit more about those sleep cycles. Yeah, so typically a sleep cycle lasts about 90 minutes and there's generally about sort of six to eight across a normal adult sleep. So people focus on these eight hours sleep that I need to get eight hours sleep, but it is an average. So some people will be able to function quite well on less and others will function quite will need a lot more sleep such as like up to 10 hours sleep a night yeah right so the eight is the average but it's not something to really get stuck on it's good to aim for but if you're not quite there or you feel like you can survive on a bit less or you know that you're someone who needs a bit more sleep then that's just that's you you're not in that average range yeah so across the sleep we have our deepest sleep cycles in the early parts of the night so from, you know, between 10 to 1 a.m., we tend to go into our deep, deep sleep. Mm-hmm. So if you were to put electrodes on our brain and monitor our brain waves, we would see really nice slow wave brain activity. Mm-hmm. And that you really hard to rouse during this period. So you're really heavy, very unconscious. Um, yeah. Your body's doing its deepest sort of restorative work physically. 
So yeah. we need that for our physical recovery. Yeah. So like, so say if I'm waking up during that period of time, then yeah. maybe um, that would be a clue as to why, say, physically, you like your muscles might feel more sore or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Or if you're someone who's actually staying up a bit later. Yeah. So if you're going to bed at, say, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, yeah. um, you're probably missing that really nice deep sleep. Yeah. So there are definitely night owls, but there's still a range to that so if you're kind of missing that 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 early window of deep sleep you're probably not going to feel as good physically yeah yeah and i certainly know when i get like broken sleep mm. like i feel like that's when i'm much more foggy the next day yeah so the other part of sleep is that so we'll cycle in and out of these there's four stages of sleep one to two of relatively light so if someone's in stage one sleep yep. and we woke them up, they would say they were awake. So it's hard to know that mm-hmm. you're actually asleep in that stage. Yep, yep, yep. So people are actually really poor at estimating how much sleep they've had. Yeah, right. They tend to underreport. If I, if I mapped your brain waves versus what you report, yep. there's quite a discrepancy. How interesting. Yeah, because yeah, there's certainly times when I feel like, say I've been waking up, by children, yeah. I would feel like I've been awake and then something would happen and they go, oh no, I must have actually been asleep yeah. during that time. Yeah. Like then you should properly come awake. Yeah, yeah. Or people have observed you to be sleeping and you're like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't sleeping at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was awake. But no, you actually probably were in stage one sleep. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's not until you kind of enter the deeper stages of sleep and then you're woken up that then you could say, yes, I was, I was asleep. Yeah. Yeah. So the good thing to know is that if you are having broken sleep, you're probably actually getting a lot more sleep than you estimate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But as the night progresses, uh, we don't spend as much time in the really deep stages. We spend more time in the lighter stages. And over that 90-minute cycle, as we reach the lighter stages of sleep again, that's when you're more likely to be roused. So if there's a noise outside or the child cries or, Mm. you know, there's a something a bit of pain or urge to go to the toilet you're more likely to wake up yeah yeah one of the things i remember from studying is that we do actually filter our environment and we're aware of our environment when we're sleeping so people might say oh no that's not true or kind of go what do you mean Mm. but if you're asleep and someone calls out your name, yeah. you're statistically more likely to wake up than say if they called out someone else's name. Yeah. And it's the same thing with like whatever's on your mind. Mm-hmm. So uh, say if you're worried about getting onto a flight. Oh yeah. Then, <laughs> then, then like anything that sounds like your alarm, you hear. Yeah. It's yeah. like that novel time when you have to wake up earlier than usual and you're yeah. worried about missing your alarm. Yeah. I, I, I certainly yeah. think I remember backpacking and I think I was in Vancouver and I think I woke up every single hour because yeah, I think my alarm, <laughs> my alarm wasn't working. Yeah, also, yeah. I and think all... your parents as well, yeah. like, become really attuned to their child's movements. So yeah. my dad used to talk about he could sleep through anything except if we would tiptoe into the room or yeah. like whisper his name. No. He was like instantly wide awake. Yeah, no, no. Where I live in the inner city, there's a lot of noise outside, but I can hear children walking into mm. my room and I'm awake mm. like yeah so it's, so it's quite interesting like like where there is a we're much more complicated like it's not just like we're uh, like a dead block absolutely and if you think about it from a survival evolutionary perspective that would be really important that yeah, we are attuned yeah. to our environment because it's contingent on our survival yeah so I can't remember if you asked me answer mm. the question like so you, 
why would I be why would I be foggy on some oh yeah so as the night progresses so yeah. you're entering lighter stages of sleep yeah but then you start to have uh, what we call REM sleep yeah so the st- the earlier stages of sleep are non-REM and REM is the rapid eye movement and that's yeah. associated with dreaming and so that's when you tend to remember your dreams later in the night because yeah. you're spending more time in non-REM sleep and the studies kind of indicate that's when we think that's when all your cognitive processing goes on. So when you're kind of processing away the events of the day, your memory is really important here about sort of sorting through what happened and, and filing away, I guess, things that into long-term memory and discarding things that probably aren't so important. So mm. it's, it's where we think that all that sort of cognitive processing and restoration kind of resetting for the next day occurs so if you're getting lots of broken sleep in that window of the day or you're waking up quite early because perhaps you're on like a work schedule where you know you're you know having to get up at say 4 a.m yeah um you're not going to get that as much of that processing yeah and i was having a discussion with uh i was having a discussion with a medical colleague and they were very very busy and i was you know, one of the things that I use to persuade them to say, you know, maybe you need to get a bit more rest is like actually your cognitive ability is going to be reduced. Yeah, yeah. And there's something about like staying up really, really long hours, which mm. is a bit different to what we're talking about. But after you've been awake for 20 hours or something like that, then you basically like 0.05 in terms of oh, yeah, it's like, really, like yeah. a whole lot of things, yeah. like 0.05 blood alcohol. In terms of response times and reactiveness. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so it's interesting when you mm. kind of think about it in that kind of way yeah and absolutely and i think in lots of professions like that sleep is really not a priority it's like seen yeah. as a bit of a weakness if you're needing yeah. to sleep and actually it's it's a safety thing I yeah. mean, they should be really focusing on getting good sleep it's so important in so many parts of your life and there's even more research emerging that it's potentially linked to uh, alzheimer's disease How so interesting. people that don't sleep well or chronically sleep deprived tend to have more buildup of plaques in their brain, which is associated with Alzheimer's disease later in life. I didn't know that. Yeah. I I came across some stuff that sort of talked about obesity and, Mm. and poor sleep. Yeah. Like, and I think that's where sort of shift workers can kind of get caught. Like it, it's sort of a trigger somehow for putting on weight. Well, the other thing is when you're sleep deprived is that your body craves more high fat, high energy foods golden food yeah yeah yeah. so you're more likely to kind of make poorer choices the next day because you're sort of sleep deprived a bit tired grumpy lazy (laughs) a bowl of chips and a coke's not the right thing probably not the best option (laughs) or people compensate with more caffeine as well and then it can become a bit of a vicious cycle because you're trying to compensate for a poor night's sleep with excess caffeine but then the next night finding it hard to sleep because you've got this buildup of caffeine in your system. Yeah. And like when I used to work in drug and alcohol, one of the things that one of the things that people say when they're trying to stop, say something like uh, marijuana or drinking alcohol Mm. or like prescription drugs like Xanax and things like that, that those drugs actually all disrupt REM sleep. Right. And yeah. and so one of the things that people will do, so say if you have a big night out drinking mm-hmm. and then the next night you don't drink anything, your sleep will be really quite, like you kind of get rebound REM sleep. Yeah, right. And so your sleep that next night is kind of a bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. or like a bit difficult. Mm-hmm. And and so, so you can then sort of start to see it's like, oh, 
oh, I was having difficulty sleeping, so I drank some more. And like mm. people can kind of get caught in a loop because they need to, as part of the detox thing, is they need to kind of reset yeah. over a few days. Yeah. And alcohol is one of those things that a lot of people end up resorting to um, yeah. to help with sleep because it is such a nice sedative at the end of the evening. Yeah. But the problem with alcohol is that it will put you to sleep, but it will often wake you up. As you a few sober, hours later yes, and, as you sober up yeah and disrupt your sleep cycle so yeah like if you're going to the bathroom or like you just kind of wake up yeah something about the uh, the actual alcohol processing through your system too seems to disturb yeah i think someone said, once said to me oh it's mm. the alcoholic dawn yeah ah, which is like yeah, sort of the phrase that they yeah. used what kind of uh, health problems impact on sleep Oh, there's so many. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin. Lots of things like cancer. It it can actually be the the illness itself or it could be the medications associated with that. So things like Parkinson's, for example, because of the disruption to the dopamine system that can have significant impacts on sleep. Yeah, right. Cancer with the steroids and and the treatments and things that can cause side effects yeah steroids make people awake yeah Yeah, yeah. wide awake yeah (laughs) and frustrated that they can't sleep and they're fatigued from their treatment so it can become a bit of a dilemma for them Mm. probably even strokes yeah like lots and lots of different health conditions um, can keep people awake yeah and it's a combination i think of the stress of the health condition the medications but also sometimes the actual physical disease process itself yeah i mean and then conversely you get there's quite a lot of conditions where people just have a lot of fatigue yes sleep a lot in the cancer world radiation treatment the number one symptom from radiation treatment is fatigue yeah but interestingly the more research that's coming out is it used to be that if for cancer patients it was like okay you need to rest because you're going to be really fatigued but now the research is going the complete opposite way to say that more exercise, more activity, it's actually going to be more beneficial to mm. managing fatigue than resting. So as a clinician, you have to be quite careful though with mm. that, I think, because you don't want to like, you're like, oh, I know you're on chemo, but you need to go for a run. Like, yeah, you <laughs> absolutely. Let, let's, uh, let's just try and like work that in. But I mean, yeah. I certainly know, just to close a little bit about myself, like when the birth of my second child, I knew that fatigue was going to be a problem. And so like, I thought I'll actually see it around an experiment where mm. I purposefully exercised mm-hmm. and like I would go for a run and I would yeah. feel better. Yeah. And yeah. My husband swears that the days he doesn't go to the gym, he's more fatigued and sleeps worse yeah. than the days he does go. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And like, I mean, I guess it means just sort of right now wheelhouse of psychologists. What are the kind of, what, what's the link between mood problems and, and sleep? Yeah, that one can be hard to sift through sometimes because it's sort of the chicken and egg question, which yep. one causes which. But definitely there's a strong link between anxiety and depression and sleep disturbance. So yeah. it's one of the diagnostic criteria. Of, de- of depression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a tricky one. I, I, to, to my practice, I don't necessarily think it matters which one causes which. I think I, I treat them both the same mm. anyway. So if someone's not sleeping well... If they're depressed, well, we still need to fix their sleep. And once yeah. we can get a better handle on their sleep, then they're going to feel better emotionally as well. Yeah. So depression is an interesting one because it can go either way. So you can have hypersomnia where you're just sleeping excessively because you've just sort of lost all motivation yeah. and you're so fatigued all the time and there's no energy. Or you can still feel like that, but then not sleep 
as well with yeah. depression. Yeah, so. so you can sort of stay up awake and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and one of the problems with that is that perpetuates that cycle of depression. Absolutely. Because, say, if you're sleeping all the time, mm. then you might feel bad about the fact that you're doing that, you're not doing other things, yeah. and that's not so good. Or, like, people start to get annoyed with you, it affects your social relationships, yeah. you become a hermit, you know, yeah. and then your life is, is actually poorer yes and the same thing with like if you're not sleeping a lot you know you can be like oh why am i awake or like i'm awake all the time and like you get bored and you're mm. unhappy and you know, things like that so yeah and i think when you sort of mentioned the, all the sleep hygiene strategies like they do sound relatively simple you know go to bed at a certain time and make sure your room's nice and calm and quiet and the right temperature and all yeah. those things but implementing that in real life is a real challenge i think for a lot of people yeah so i often talk to people about you know with little children we generally teach them a bedtime routine generally speaking it's like dinner bath story time bed and kids get to know that's that's what happens in the evening yeah. and now it's time to go to sleep. Whether that's successful or not, <laughs> so it depends on the night, I guess. But, you know, children get taught that usually yeah. that there's a particular routine to bedtime yeah. and it starts to help them unwind and prepare for bed. Yeah, and this is that signaling of this mm. is what I'm doing, this is what we're doing and calm everyone down, that kind of stuff. And, yeah. you know, I think more often than not, that's what actually works with, with children. But as adults, I think we fall out of that, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there could be things like work or what's on Netflix or, <laughs> you know, lots of things interfere with our sleep. There's this new term coming out called social jet lag where we tend to have different routines for weekends versus work week. Yep, yep. So, like, work week, you might be pretty good at sort of sticking to a fairly good, say, you know, go to bed at 10 o'clock, get up at six. But then on a weekend, you might stay up till, you know, one, two, three, mm, who knows, mm. you might even do an all-nighter depending on what stage of life you're at. And and then you're sleeping in to kind of make up for that. And then the Monday comes around and you're finding it really difficult to yeah. get out of bed. So as hard as it is, even maintaining <coughs> those routines over the weekend is really important for good sleep as well. Yeah. Hard. Or maybe just that. Like every night, like party. So what we thought we might do is run through a couple of case examples. Like often I find thinking about particular cases is a good way of demonstrating what psychologists kind of do. Mm-hmm. So the first one that I was thinking about was like the classic case is a patient who struggles to get to sleep. So goes to bed and lies awake. Mm-hmm. So in my clinic, that's usually a cancer patient who often will find their thoughts quite busy mm. or anxious at night. Yeah. Talk to me about like, how do you go about that? And what do you do there? Yeah. So if it's a cancer patient, I'd firstly want to know what medication they're on too, because if, if they're on steroids, I think you're kind of fighting a bit of an uphill battles. So yeah. And it's about saying, well, let's say you're just not going to get to, while you're on this medication for a couple of days over treatment, you're just not going to get good sleep. So let's find something else you can do to occupy your mind and get a little bit of rest without yeah. actually trying to force sleep because mm. it's not going to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you want someone to rest, yes. not lie there and be frustrated because yeah. they won't be resting at That's that point. That's right. Yeah. And you then interfering with the association of bed and bedroom as this quiet, calm, restful place, it yep. becomes a source of frustration and agitation. And that's the last thing we need. Um, And people then become really avoidant of wanting to go to bed because they know it's just going to be hard work. So firstly, it's just trying to understand, yeah, are there any other medical things going on that we need to sort of 
account for. But if it really does appear to be thoughts and routines, then it's about trying to manage those and helping them to, to learn how to do that. Yeah. One thing that I think I come across is that people will keep, if you're stressed and you're anxious about a health condition mm-hmm. that's going on, or it could be anything else, is often what we do is we keep ourselves quite busy yes. during the day. Yes. Right? And we don't notice that because we just kind of do it. It's kind of like being in a, in a pool and we kind of gravitate towards the warm area. We don't mm. sort of really realize that that's what we're mm. doing. And, and then I think often the pattern can be that people kind of get into bed and it's probably the first time it's been kind of quiet. Yeah, and your As, mind's like, hello, you've got some time to process what yeah. happened. Hello, what's happening there? Yeah. Have you thought about all these things yeah. that are going on? Absolutely. So I think it, it is important to encourage people to clear that space in the day to, yeah. to have some quiet time and self-reflection and whether that's writing things down or talking to a friend or... Or maybe even just like trying to do some relaxation yeah. at some point during the day so that mm-hmm. they... Maybe actually just take a lunch break or something might be yeah. something to do. do or some a, self-care. Yeah, at a patient that institutes of actually just spending some time listening to music each day mm. and that helped with their sleep at night. Well, other activities where they find they can do that thinking, whether it's going for a walk or in the shower. Some people do great thinking in yeah, the shower. Yeah, yeah. You know, finding that space in their day where they can have those sort of thoughts and processing yeah like like you know like instead of like listening to a podcast on the way to work mm. like turning that off and just driving in silence that's right yeah what, what thoughts yeah, once you've listened to the two shrinks yeah. pod, <laughs> <laughs> turn off other podcasts but yeah yeah i mean and the other thing i always think about is mindfulness exercises or, mm. or relaxation exercises yes definitely so mindfulness to me is it's like training your, your brain really it's it's a bit like going to the gym to prepare for something physical to to manage our mind and our thoughts mindfulness is is really useful about training our attention mm. and being able to let thoughts go when they're really busy or interfering with our function and also just being able to tune into our body and our emotional processes and what's going on yeah um, but I really encourage people to not do it in bed or not do it when they're tired because it, if you think about it like going to the gym for your brain, oh, okay. you need to be alert and awake and be able to focus on that process because it is an active process, mm-hmm. not sort of wanting to drift off to sleep. Mm. When it's a relaxation exercise, the goal is actually to relax and calm your mind. So it's mm. okay to do those exercises when you're in bed. Mm-hmm. And it's good to sometimes have a particular relaxation technique that you can then associate with bed and sleep. So if you consistently like a, like a do it, like a deep breathing exercise, yeah, or, or a body that. scan can be easy, or a visualization of a calm, happy yeah. place. Yeah. So maybe like, you know, if you're not sleeping in the middle of the night, get up. Maybe you could do a mindfulness exercise then, or something like to maybe clear the decks, or not really. Um, probably more relaxation than yeah. mindfulness. Yeah. Um, just. I mean, it depends on what's working, but I guess if you're trying to learn a new skill, which is mindfulness is a skill um, and you're trying to do that when the goal is to go to sleep or when you're already sleep deprived, you're kind of worst in the middle of the night, it's not going to be successful. Yeah. It's hard to learn any new skill when we're exhausted, tired, Yeah. three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I think well, I think one of, one of the things that people kind of and I think even clinicians do uh, get mixed up between mindfulness and relaxation yes, because yeah. I think 
often the outcome of a mindfulness exercise is, is actually they yeah. feel relaxed yeah. because they're getting distance from their thoughts, getting distance from yeah. that those images. And when they don't get that, they're like, I'm not doing it right. And I'm like, no, you are. It's just that that was your particular experience that day. Yeah. So it is important. The other part of mindfulness is being non-judgmental yeah. and non-critical because it's just going with whatever processes are happening and just observing that yeah. so, so i had a classic thing where i was giving a presentation to some gps and i was teaching one of the parts of it was mindfulness and it was i think it was like the long weekend where the, the grand prix was on in melbourne oh, yeah. and there were like the military air flights like doing loops <laughs> over the city and one of the doctors was like or like i couldn't concentrate all i could think of was that was the, the airplanes i'm like well that's that's part of mindfulness yeah. and like it's about kind of observing that you're getting distracted. Yeah. 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 And ideally when you are learning these techniques, try and do it in a quiet room because you know, <laughs> that, that distraction will frustrate you. Yeah. But yeah, again, it is just noticing that your thought has been, or your attention has been diverted. Yeah. And to bring it back to whatever it is that you're focusing your attention on, whether that's your breath or your body or anything yeah. else. And I think when you've got a lot of anxious thoughts going on, it's difficult it depends on what they are, but I mean, like, you know, cancer patient might be worrying about the treatment or might yeah. be worrying about the treatment effectiveness yeah. or might be worrying about the longer term future. Like, yeah, that uncertainty. That uncertainty. Mm. So, I mean, I think that's quite complicated to easily yeah. work through. Yeah, mindfulness has good evidence for yeah. fear of cancer recurrence and managing that uncertainty yeah but again doing it when you're trying to sleep yeah yeah not the best place yeah i mean i think that that's when i always think about like those mm. cognitive strategies about well you know let's look at examine that thought and do we you know we've been black and white are we catastrophizing and trying to sort of break it down that way or trying to be gentle to ourselves like, well it's okay yeah. to worry about this stuff but maybe maybe i don't need to worry about it right at the minute yeah, I guess to the other thing I often talk to my clients about is that the other part of cognitive behavior therapy is the behavior part. Yeah. And I think sometimes as clinicians, we focus a little too much on the cognitive part. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, sometimes it is just too hard to try and reframe all your thoughts if it's yeah. 2 a.m. and you've been awake for an hour and a half. So do something different. Yeah. Um, the other thing, if you keep coming back to the sleep cycles and that they're 90 minutes, if you miss that 90 minute cycle, it's going to be a struggle to get back to sleep. So it's yeah. better off just getting up, doing something quiet, boring, non-stimulating, fold the socks, iron some underwear if that floats your boat, you know, read something that's not exciting, so yeah. not a magazine, like something yeah. that's quite boring yeah. do something quiet and out of the bedroom and when you feel tired again when you feel your eyes getting heavy when you feel that sleepiness not tiredness is it quite a difference so when you feel like you could drop off to sleep again yeah head back to bed and try again yeah yeah you can kind of get yourself into trouble i think if you push through yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. that kind of fits quite nicely with the next one which was the a patient who wakes during the night and yeah. struggles to get back to sleep yeah Often it's thoughts and so again it's using those strategies to manage the thoughts mm. but if you can't fall back asleep within about 20 minutes to half an hour, get up and do something else. Yeah. Because you need a calm mind and a calm body for sleep yeah. Yeah. and if you're there ruminating, going over the day's events or your future worries, that creates stress, 
creates agitation yeah. or you could just be frustrated that you're not falling asleep because yeah. often when I ask clients you know are there things that have been on your mind oh no I've got no worries but then you uncover it well they're actually worrying about not sleeping mm. it's worrying about the consequences of not sleeping mm. we tend to really catastrophize about the impacts of sleep deprivation mm. so you know, you mentioned before there are some quite serious effects of sleep deprivation. A bit like on a one-off. Yeah, on a one-off or a couple of nights here and there. We actually tend to function quite fine. Yeah, I mean, and I think, yeah, that's kind of where it can be interesting to kind of go, look, have you ever gone to work sleep deprived? What happened? Yeah. Is it as bad as that you think it's going to be? Yeah. Can you manage? Like on all on all balance, can you manage? Mm. Do you think you're going to be okay? Yes, it might not be you know, you might not like it. You might not like being at work, being tired, but it might actually be not as bad as what you're thinking. Yeah. And I certainly, like from personal experience, like, but often like I'll get to work and I'll feel tired, but then over the course of the day, I don't actually feel tired the whole day. Yes, you have you know? moments of tiredness. Yeah. Moments where you're like, oh yeah, that's right. I slept terribly last night. Yeah. But you kind of just get on with it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting process. And I think one of the other things I have come across when working in the health setting is that people will be woken because of a health problem. So like mm. I think we've mentioned at the start of the show, like people who say need to go to the bathroom multiple mm. times a night yeah. or they might have like a, a pain problem that's, yes. that's occurring at that time or something like that. And sometimes I think with those things where someone's required to be active mm-hmm. in that thing that they can often then kind of do something. I remember working with a woman many years ago and she would always like get up and then go to the bathroom or whatever and then we'd make a cup of tea and then and then she couldn't sleep. I was like, well, <laughs> how about we try not doing that? <laughs> and then, could you have a glass yeah. of water? Yeah. And that, that helped her sleep. Yeah, and it's interesting that I guess this is where a psychologist can be handy, just looking at patterns and it's often, it's honestly sometimes the really obvious stuff. Like if it's a urinary issue... You know, maybe having the bulk of your fluids earlier in the day to yeah. give you an opportunity to pass everything before bed yeah. um, rather than maybe drinking the four cups of tea in front of the TV and then going to bed and expecting to be able to sleep the whole night. Yeah, yeah. So little simple behavioral changes like that. The other thing as well is that as we age, we don't our sleep cycles are not as well regulated. Okay. So our body is not a, as good at keeping that nice 90 minute cycle going yeah so sleep cycles become a bit more fragmented which means we are more likely to just wake up and we also don't need as much sleep yeah so as we age if you think about a newborn baby they sleep for about 18 hours a day unfortunately not in one go (laughs) (laughs) own little bites across the day but their main activity is sleeping and then adolescents still need about 12 to 14 hours sleep. Yeah. Um, and then as we kind of reach young adulthood, we, we tend to hit that average of eight hours sleep a night. But again, as we age, as we kind of reach that over 65 age range, we don't need as much sleep. But yep. we're still in these habits of going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, for example, getting mm. up at six. But actually, you probably only need, you might only be needing five hours sleep. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it is interesting to like kind of test that. What you sort of said is that we're unreliable in knowing mm. how much sleep we get. And so that can lead to like false beliefs around what it is that we actually need. Yeah. And then like that, oh my gosh, I've got this big thing on tomorrow mm. and now I'm not, I'm awake. I'm going to F it up. Yeah. 
that might not actually be true. It might just be hard. Yes. Yeah. And also try not to focus on numbers, like how many hours sleep. It's more about the quality. Like if you're waking in the morning and you're feeling rested, yeah. then that's fine. Does yeah. it really actually matter how much sleep you have? Yeah. One of the other things I, I've often said to patients is the reframing. It's like, oh, well, okay, you're getting frustrated, but okay, let's think about it. It's like you're lying in bed. It's all quiet. You can use this time to reflect on some of the nice things in your life. Mm. And, and you know, that, you know, we don't get to do that very often. That mm. could be kind of a good thing. I mean, some people might listen to that and go, oh, yeah, come on, mate, whatever. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when you're actually able to do it in that way, you can kind of go, well, I'm resting and this is okay. Mm. And that's not such a bad thing. Mm. So, and then the, paradoxically, because we do that, we often actually drift off to sleep. Exactly. Because yeah. we're relaxed. Yeah. So... It kind of fits in just a little bit with the next one, which was the, I think this is probably what I would, uh, I'm not going to turn this into just a therapy session for myself, <laughs> but the problem that I have, and I think many young adults have, they don't have a problem sleeping per se. They just don't get enough because they just don't go to bed, like mm. s- sleep procrastination. Yeah. And I think too, that's the symptom of what's going on in your life. What Netflix show you're currently binging on or yep. what's going on on social media or yep. This kind of perception or this feeling that you have to be sort of doing things all the time. A lot of people's work lives are now blurred into home life too. Mm, so mm. checking emails, doing work-related things. So I think it really is about prioritizing sleep. To me, it's one of the absolute pillars of good health. So, you know, if you want to take care of yourself, sleep is a really important part of that. So yeah. you're trying to prioritize it. Yeah. yeah, and I think it kind of gets that sort of trying to understand what your personality is or your yeah. schemas are or uh, th- those kinds of patterns where, you know, oh, I've got this free time in the evening and I need to do all this stuff. Mm. You know, it's like, well, how much stuff do you really need to do? Or I can yeah. do some stuff but maybe just do three of those things rather than ten of those things. And I think too people say, oh, I can survive on, you know, just five hours sleep. And, and that might be true. They can function but, you know, maybe they're actually not at their optimal level and we also learning more about the long-term consequences like you mentioned before with obesity and alzheimer's disease and yeah i think that sleep is such a mysterious process still that i think there's still so much more to learn about it and i think in decades to come we'll we'll have i mean so much more and we're not even really gonna we're not even really going to talk about dreams no gosh a whole other scenario and parasomnias that's a like yeah, that's an entire another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess the next one I was thinking about was like, you know, someone who feels tired all the time despite sleeping or despite appearing to sleep a lot. Mm. So, I mean, the extreme example I was thinking about was chronic fatigue. Yeah. But there's other things that might be fatigue related to treatments and things like that. I, I guess what is that is like, how would you go about figuring out what's going on? Yeah, it's about understanding is there psychological things going on like depression or, yeah, if there's a chronic fatigue sort of presentation, pain even, a lot of people in pain tend to sort of rest a lot to Mm. avoid triggering pain. Yeah, people going through treatments for cancer and other medical issues cause a lot of fatigue and it's really hard to get people up and going. Like yep. that's, I think actually hypersomnia is harder to treat than insomnia. Than insomnia. How interesting. What people, do you think is hard about well, that? People generally with disturbed sleep want to get better sleep. Mm. Like there's a motivation to yep. get better, but 
hypersomnia, I think because it can perpetuate, you mentioned before, in terms of it does interfere with your life so much that, you know, you might withdraw from family and friends, you might not be able to function in work or study. So then it kind of, you end up failing in those areas, which yeah. then kind of perpetuates this little, what's the point of getting out of bed? Yeah. There's nothing to really get up for. So there's not as strong an incentive. And I think it can seem really overwhelming as well for a lot of people because they look at a like so-called normal functioning person and think, well, how am I ever going to achieve that? I'm spending yeah, and, 40 and, hours in bed. And, they, and also like their direct experience of like, all right, well, I tried that thing mm. once this week yeah. and I was really tired when I woke up and it was yeah. really, really awful. And, yes. you know, it's not the behavior change doesn't yield benefits straight away that's right whereas if you're sleep disturbed and you get a good night's sleep you feel a million bucks you're like i'm gonna do that again because that worked yeah (laughs) yeah. well actually actually, (laughs) the problem with that one is 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 that you if you get a good night's sleep then you're like this is great and then you stay up for like 20 (laughs) hours because like i've got so much energy and then you're straight back into the problem Uh, so yeah i think it's just really really then getting behavioral with people and really getting strict routines in but keeping it realistic and having to really incrementally ease back on the amount of time in bed yeah yeah and i think you know you can quickly sort of see with somebody so you know well what would happen if you got out of bed earlier Mm. like i mean how would you do it you need to have alarm yada yada but you could very quickly encounter avoidance and like a whole lot of like, oh, I'm not depressed. I just sleep all the time. Yeah. And you know, oh, really? Well, mm-hmm. so what would happen if you got up at eight o'clock rather than 11 o'clock yeah. and examining whatever, I hate the word resistance, but like, you know, whatever kinds of internal resistance that's like, oh, I don't think I really want to do that. This is really awful. Yeah. I think avoidance is a big thing. Yeah. yeah. What are they avoiding by staying in bed? Yeah. And, and one of the things that, cognitively behaviorally we're trained to ask people like when do you get mood symptoms and so something that you can often see with people would be they say oh i feel worse in the morning Mm. and i feel okay at the end of the day now you could kind of buy like a physiological explanation to that but often psychologically it's overwhelming to at the start of the day because you might have all these things that you need to get done or mm-hmm. that you feel you should be getting done or something at the end of the day you might be like well i don't have to do anything anymore yeah I've, i know i've got it's just the night time and i'm gonna see my family and blah, blah blah and the pressure's off and so psychologically there can be a trigger for the time of the day or something like that mm-hmm. and so you can see why someone might go well i'll sleep a lot during the day mm-hmm. and then oh, I, i'm okay at night mm-hmm. yeah i think it's Sleep diaries are really useful in finding out the behaviors around sleep and wake time as well. Yeah. So really getting people to plot out each hour of their day and how much they're sleeping and what when they're awake, what they're actually doing. Yep. Getting people to fill out those diaries is another thing. <laughs> Again, if I think it's easier when you're sleep disturbed, like waking up a lot or not getting good sleep because you're on board with the process generally. Mm. But it's the, the hypersomnia that's tricky but i think also encouraging people to be more active because yeah paradoxically it does help (laughs) with energy and and alertness so yeah yeah it's a tricky one i think hypersomnia yeah it's definitely difficult and i mean i guess i get the just as the last last thing i was thinking about what's your rule of thumb about using sleep medications or things like Mm. that yeah so i really discourage people from relying on 
medications for sleep because most of them tend to be quite short acting and cause dependence. So the benzodiazepines tend to work really only for about two weeks and then people become, their body becomes dependent on them. Mm. Um, And you're not, yes, you're asleep, but you're not actually getting that that active process going on. Yeah, we're like disrupted, like we sort of say. Yeah, so you're not getting the nice sleep cycles that you would get from natural sleep. So yep. you might sleep for eight hours, but you're not actually feeling fresh and restored from that yeah. sleep because your body's not actively doing what it's meant to do when it's... Yeah, and like I think what you were saying before, that sleep association. So mm. you know that, oh, I have to have this to get to sleep. And yeah. the reality is that someone will sleep if they don't have have a medication it's just it yeah. might not be straight away but eventually your body will sleep yeah sleep will come to you it's yeah. inevitable it's 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 vital for our survival yeah. so eventually if you don't sleep so if you're awake for 48 hours eventually you will fall asleep yeah so i think those types of medications are great for acute issues so if you're going through a really highly stressful time and you just need that Mm. you just need that assistance then i think that's totally fine yeah and that was like the the one-off kind of scenarios yeah uh, there's major life events where you're just wide awake for the entire night just cannot sleep because of what's gone on yeah. then i think absolutely because you still need to function the next yeah. day and i think that often what i sort of think about is that people can sometimes just need to break a yeah. cycle like yeah. they, that sometimes actually if they get one good night's sleep then that can then reset them yes. and and so if you're using it that way following it up with good behaviors hmm. later on yeah do you have other thoughts or I think it's just really important that if people are experiencing sleep problems, there's so much support out there and lots of information on the internet even. Yeah, um, right. Really great resources. But also to speak to your GP about a referral to a psychologist because a lot of psychologists can do a lot for people mm. with sleep disturbance, mm. but we're not often thought of. <laughs> you know, people often go straight to the medications. Yeah. You know, I need, I need a sleeping pill. Like I said, it might help in the acute phase but it's not a long-term solution and yeah. and often the side effects of those medications are worse you know the sedating effect the next day and the impact mm. on the ability to drive and it's not generally too many negative side effects of seeing a psychologist no no we're generally uh, side effect free <laughs> <laughs> safe and gentle to the stomach <laughs> well uh we might take a quick break and we will return with our segment things we came across you're going to stick around for that? Yes. Yep. Uh, you've been listening to Two Shrinks Pod. This is about a show where we take a break. Lyndall's hoeing into a very interesting looking cupcake. Mm, Maltesers. Maltesers and chocolate. And uh, just to remind people, if you like the show, please subscribe to the show through over whatever way you listen to your podcasts, check out our website, twoshrinkspod.com. And also have a look in the podcast description, episode description. We always put the links to some interesting articles and also to the articles of the things we came across and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I think I'm going to keep it short and sharp. Lindell wants to keep eating a cupcake. So we're back after a break. Lindell has polished off. How cupcake review? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> pretty... I rate the Malteser. 
I always think Maltesers are like a real treat to have. I mean, no, I don't like it, just buy them myself, but like. They're just unstoppable. Like, once I just, there's something about them that I just can't stop. So, uh, this is the uh, segment of the show. It's, it's a bit more lighthearted. Um, it's called Things We Came Across. This is when we kind of find uh, and discuss, you know, research articles that have caught our eye during the week. Something odd, something not that serious. Might be serious, but. You know, when people are kind of like, you're like, really? Someone researched that? Mm. Did you want to go first or shall I? You can go first. I will go first. Lead the way. So uh, I came across this one. Um, it is a letter to a journal called Arthritis and Rheumatology. And I think it was published in 1988. And it's by Donald L. Unger from Thousand Oaks in California. And the title of the letter is, Does Knuckle Cracking Lead to Arthritis of Fingers? Ooh. So uh, I, I might just read... It's a short letter, so I'll read most of it. During the author's childhood, various uh, renowned authorities, his mother, several aunts, and later his mother-in-law, informed him that cracking his knuckles would lead to arthritis of the fingers. To test the accuracy of this hypothesis, for 50 years, the author cracked the knuckles of his left hand at least twice a day, leaving those on the right as a control. (laughs) Thus, the knuckles were cracked about... The knuckles on his left hand were cracked at least 36,000 times or 36,500 times, while those on the right were cracked rarely and spontaneously. At the end of 50 years, the hands were compared for the presence of arthritis. There was... What do you reckon? Oh, I want to know which is his dominant hand. <laughs> Ooh, getting yeah. a bit of a bit of a handedness kind of mm. research. Well, it doesn't actually say that's it's a flaw to the study. They um, there was no arthritis in either hand, no apparent differences. So this author was saying, while a larger group would be necessary to confirm the result, the preliminary investigation suggests a lack of correlation between knuckle cracking and the development of arthritis in the fingers. And there was only one previous paper on the subject and that came to the same conclusion. So this author said, well, you know, this result calls into question whether other parental beliefs, such as the importance of eating spinach, are also flawed. <laughs> it suggests further investigation. Oh, gosh. What I actually really liked was they got Robert Sweezy, who actually authored the previous only paper on this thing. So the previous paper was in a journal, the West Journal of Medicine, uh, in 1973. And they got that author to review this letter. Okay. And so he talks about this study and kind of just provides kind of a, a, a critique of it. So says, well, you know, the basic study designed by Dr. Unger is a two-arm trial without randomization, <laughs> and it appears the study was not blinded. Blinding would have only been possible if the investigator did not know left from right. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> um, the lack of randomization suggests a need for multivariate analysis to reduce bias. So they listed off like a whole of things like, you know, you can control for economic status, initial severity, comorbidities, parametric pressure at the time of cracking and they talked about the sample size being too small so but they did say that uh, restrictive eligibility criteria and convenience sampling limit the generalization of results to knuckle cracking physicians with a lot of time on their hands <laughs> i really admire his commitment to the cause. <laughs> so i mean they, they did sort of said that uh, you know there, there might be some benefits to uh, therapeutic benefits to uh, you know, cracking knuckles. So I thought I'd just leave it there. Interesting. I can't crack my knuckles. I'm not one of those. You can't do it. No. Crack other 
parts of my body randomly, but not the knuckles. What other parts of your body can well, you crack? Well, my hips quite frequently crack. My sternum, it's really weird. I reckon I've had my sternum cracked like once or yeah, twice. Yeah, sometimes it'll stand up and stretch and it will just crack. And it felt really good, yeah. but like it's like I can't, like I've tried to chase that high again. <laughs> Does it come back? <laughs> Uh, so where are you going to take us? Okay, so just one more episode. The frequency and theoretical correlates of television binge watching. Oh, right. Yeah, something I've been getting into a lot lately. What have you been binge watching? Outlander. Oh, right. Mm. I've heard that that's good. It's quite good, yes. It, yeah, I just thought, you know, with the Netflix age and Stan and all these streaming, it seems like there's a new streaming service every week at the moment so yeah they they did an online survey of people to assess their binge watching prevalence and yep. looking at social psychology factors associated with the behavior um the author is emily walton patterson and it was published in the journal of health psychology quite oh. a preeminent wow, journal that's, that's a great i know this year so interestingly of the 86 people surveyed people spent an average of 1.4 days Binge watching. Per year? Week. Per week? Yeah. Wow. I know, that's a lot, right? <laughs> I was just wondering if that was a sort of a self-selection bias perhaps in the sampling. Was it like a convenience sample or like the usual undergraduates? or Ooh, what's the... I think it was undergraduates. Maybe that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I reckon like, you know, full-time workers are like way more prone to. No, through social media snowball method. Ah, right. Mm, interesting. So the correlates they looked at were dual processing. So they wanted to understand how automaticity, so our kind of automatic behaviors and whether that overrides any kind of intention yep. to not binge watch. Yep. Anticipated regret around the consequences of binge watching. Yeah, 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 yeah. And goal conflict and goal facilitation. So how much does binge watching actually interfere with your intention to achieve things and that facilitation of those goals? Yep. And what about alcohol? Did it control for that? <laughs> no. Didn't control alcohol. another <laughs> one. So they found that on average people watched... 2.94 episodes in single binges. Yep. So it'd be about three hours, maybe. Yeah, probably yep. like three episodes, right? Yeah. Which makes sense. I think that's what... Usually I commit to two and then it's like, oh, do I have time for another one? Mm. Just sneak one more one, in. One, se one can seem a little... Like, you feel underdone. Yeah. I, I reckon the optimum might be like two to two and a half. Especially when there's a good cliffhanger. You're like, mm. how can I wait till tomorrow? I, ha I have to watch this. Yeah, maybe this is why people are sleep deprived. <laughs> Yeah, certainly through Game of Thrones season, I find oh, that's, yeah. that's very difficult. Uh, so the findings were that binge watching was correlated with intention um, and automaticity. So it was like this sort of intention, I'm going to watch a certain amount of episodes. Yep. But because now so many services queue the next episode, yep. that automaticity automaticity yeah. overrides that intention yeah, yeah, yeah. to like I'll, I'll just stop because the next episode started and it looks so good and oh, I've got time I'll just yep, yep, yep. stick around and watch it. The other thing that binge watching was correlated with was anticipated regret so this idea that yeah, if I keep watching this, I'm not going to be able to do the things I intended to do. Mm. Um, you know, it could be housework or you know, go to bed on time for example. So, um, hang on, so like if you are more likely to regret 
then you are less likely to binge watch. It was a positive correlation. So binge watching was associated with anticipated regret. Oh, so maybe like so you binge you watch and then that you're causes gonna, yeah. regret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, I'm going to regret this later. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, goal conflict. So that correlation between yeah if i keep binge watching i'm not going to be able to achieve the things that i need to achieve in my life like maybe the housework or yeah and i also like i often wonder whether that the payoff for binge watching is as good as i think it's going to be like and on one of the other things we came across a while ago amy and i talked about the spoilers and like whether you're oh, something yeah. like and then actually finding finding out the end of what actually happens in a movie or a tv show often doesn't decrease the enjoyment of the TV show as much as we as you, you might think it would. And I often think, like, you might get better enjoyment out of waiting another day. And we're like, no, arguing against that. But, like, if instead of binge-watching, it's like, no, no, I'm just going to savour this and keep mm, it going yeah. rather than really, like, exhausting yourself from watching too much of Game of Thrones or whatever Yeah, it is. I think it depends on the show, too. Some shows are so intense that you, like... You need, a, you need a break. Yeah, I just find myself a bit... After Game of Thrones, I have to watch something like MasterChef just to, like, de-stress. Yeah. <laughs> it's so intense. Yeah, I, I think about, like, um, How I Met Your Mother, something, like, really yeah, completely, yeah. like, inoffensive and non-taxing. But I think some of the um, series have really got this art of uh, the cliffhanger and, that, mm. and then because the streaming service just cues it up automatically for you, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, okay, I'm just going to keep going with this like you're not really thinking about it you're kind of just See, in and, it and this and this is one of the benefits i think of like not being cool and kind of being a bit out of touch it's like <laughs> it's like if, like by the time i actually get around to watching whatever tv show there's there are like six seasons i can oh, just yeah, churn I'm through the i'm the same which well, is sometimes overwhelming <laughs> i haven't watched the sopranos yet because it's like six episodes seasons isn't oh, it oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's yeah supposed to be really good but i'm just like i can't commit it's such a big investment <laughs> yeah and people say oh you've really got to get to the third season and yeah blah, like, oh. or whatever it is and you're like you may have to watch 24 episodes before it gets good <laughs> anyway well uh lindell thank you so much for coming on to two shrinks pub and for having me. yeah we will leave it there and we'll see you guys next time